It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist L. Joy Williams. And I'm glad you made it to class this morning. And I'm gonna give you this moment of joy real early. If you have not seen, if you are not on Twitter, Big Bird is running for Senate against Ted Cruz. Of course, it's a parody Twitter account, but it is funny nonetheless. So if you are on Twitter, please go look up the account at Senator Big Bird and get your life because it's hilarious and it's funny and it's what you need in your life. But for today, I have a great conversation for us to consider some misconceptions we all may hold unless you actually live in these areas. There are some misconceptions we have about rural America. Those of us who live in big cities have the tendency to discount the political landscape of rural communities. And we actually harbor a lot of misconceptions because if you close your eyes and think to yourself or visualize, if you will, what comes to your mind when you hear someone say rural America, whether it's a journalist or a politician, you hear it in a speech or anything like that, Chances are you are like a number of folks who reside in the, quote, big city, and you think rural means the Midwest. You also think rural means exclusively white and also conservative. And those misconceptions have political implications. And I'm bringing some folks to the front of the class to give us a political education on engaging voters in rural America. So joining the Sunday Civics Classroom for the first time is Cynthia Wallace, who was born and raised in rural southeastern Georgia, where all of her grandparents were farmers. She is the executive director of the nonprofit New Rural Project, which she co-founded. And she was also the 2020 Democratic nominee for North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. Also with us is Paolo Cremides, the executive director of Outrun Coalition, which he launched along with five young Democratic elected officials from rural upstate New York. Yes, there are rural parts of New York. (laughs) They have helped recruit over 140 town council candidates, two sheriffs, three constables, Yes, we still elect constables in some places, 10 town supervisors, and a few mayors. And in the most recent election, they celebrated a 60% win rate across many counties that previously voted for Donald Trump. So welcome to the front of the class, Paolo Cremides and Cynthia Wallace. I am so very happy that they both will be able to join us to have this conversation. Good morning and thank you for joining Sunday Civics and welcome to the front of the class. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So I'm going to start where we begin with all of our guests by both of you telling us the story of your first civic action. Cynthia, I'm going to start with you first and to share with us what was your impetus? What was your beginning, whether it was as a kid or as an adult? My dad was a civil rights activist and started the NAACP in 1968 in a small town, 13% African-American. And so he was always fighting for things. And 
The first thing I can remember, though, is when we were fighting to have the MLK holiday recognized in our small rural town. And we, uh, my dad had arranged for um, the students to not go to school in protest. And my dad believed in perfect attendance. So it was a little difficult for him. He's like, I'm arranging this. So you all really do have to stay home. And so I, I really remember that being the first time that I particularly myself participated in protesting something that um, we knew was, um, was right. That's an amazing story. I love that. Always when you're participating, we, we see a trend with people that have first civic action stories when they were kids and their parents are involved, which, you know, it is it, something to take note of for you to do something along with your children. And they will remember that, <laughs> you know, 20, 30, 40 years later of their interaction or their first civic engagement. So, Paolo, what about you? Oh, man. Uh, so with me, uh, I moved to America when I was seven years old. And five years later, when I was around 13 or 12, uh, I remember having to help my dad study to take the citizenship exam. Uh, and I remember that my dad really couldn't write English that well. Uh, he could speak a little bit. He could speak somewhat. And uh, I remember just going to Buffalo with him from my hometown of Elmira. And within like the two hours that we were driving, helping him remember the 13 original colonies all of the questions that they asked in the citizenship exam. And then I remember my dad uh, getting sworn in to become a U.S. citizen after passing the citizenship exam. Uh, and that kind of made me proud uh, to kind of be a part of America and show that people can like move forward here, uh, regardless of who you are in many ways. I love that story. I think this may be the first time. I mean, uh, certainly we've had people on who talk about them becoming citizens, but I love the idea of working with your parents. Again, another parental story <laughs> as a civic engagement piece. This is a trend, folks. If you have children right now, like make that moment with them or moments with them on being civically engaged and they'll remember it. And it means that you will have civically engaged children in the future. So I have both Cynthia and Paolo on to talk about the political landscape of rural America. And Cynthia, when I introduced the show, I talked about some of the misconceptions that people have with rural America, you know, and saying, close your eyes and think about when, if someone says rural America, what do you think about? And more often than not, the rural is synonymous with Midwest. It's synonymous with white and it is synonymous with conservative, right? And so, and sometimes like real America, like the rest of America does, <laughs> like doesn't exist or something like that. Talk to us a bit about from your perspective, one, some of these other misconceptions we may have, how do we challenge those? But then also what does that mean in terms of the political landscape in some of the rural communities across the country? So you said one of the things that I do know is a mis misperception, which is that rural means white. Um, I was born in a rural town, born and raised outside of Savannah, Georgia. So I am definitely um, what we call actually a country girl. Um, but we definitely folks think that that means this, these are white people. And the work that I'm doing with the New Rural Project, we're focused on seven counties in southeastern North Carolina, and four of those seven counties are actually majority minority counties right now. One of them, Robinson County, is 70% minority, 40% Native American, another 25 to 30% African American. 
And so that's one of the big misperceptions. The other thing is that they are all conservative. Richmond County, which is also another one of the counties that we are supporting with our new organization, they have a lot of young people there that are very progressive. We had a lot of members, um, that folks that I was working with when I was running for Congress in uh, last year, they were part of the Yang Gang. Hmm. These are people in rural North Carolina, under 40, that are progressive minded. So I think we've got to expand our belief about rural. And also when we think about, you know, rural, they think, you know, they're all these very conservative people and that they're not um, ones that would be open to progressive candidates and progressive ideas. And that is not the case. And also, um, you know, my organization is nonpartisan, but I do know there's one specific party, the Democratic Party, that looks at urban areas and thinks that's their base. But there are people all over. And if we miss rural people, it's almost um, it's almost just a, a bad it's not just bad politically. It's just bad from a human perspective, because those folks need representatives that meet and reflect their needs and concerns. So, Paolo, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is because when people think of New York, they immediately think of New York City as if nothing else exists in this like entire state, right? It's just New York City. That's the only where people live. There's no other places, and there possibly cannot be rural communities in the state of New York because they, you know, they have the Statue of Liberty in the subway, right? <laughs> so like, so I know that you in organizing across rural communities in New York, talk about how these mis- misconceptions, not only that rural is Midwest, but that also you have these other large states that yes, have large metropolitan areas, but also have rural communities that we need to pay attention to and engage in as well. Well, I'd like to bring up my hometown of Elmira as a perfect example. Uh, is one of the places where the Underground Railroad ran. Um, Frederick Douglass had preached there. And a lot of the times when we talk about rural New York, people are thinking, you know, pumpkin patches in Orange County right outside of New York City. And people write off places like Western New York or Central New York uh, as if these cha- these communities are not changing, uh, and they are. And the reason why they're kind of stuck in the situation that they're at, and I'll talk a little bit more partisanly, uh, is because specifically in rural spaces, in rural democratic committees, uh, there are issues about talking about diversity and conversations about who should run for office. And so with our work, what we like to do is to kind of get folks together into a conversation with candidates of color, women, LGBTQ plus folks, non-binary candidates who've won election in rural communities, oftentimes outrunning the top of the democratic ticket uh, and showing these like smaller county democratic parties that it can be done. And it can be done in a way that doesn't have to be this uh, sort of moderate versus progressive argument where candidates, you know, candidates of color, and I've heard this multiple times, have to cut their hair or have to act a certain way or dress a certain way and, and that they can be themselves uh, and, and win in a way that doesn't create this notion of, of the Democratic candidate that has to be a particular person. Uh, and I'll give you an example. You know, uh, one of my heroes is a congressman from Central, uh, from the Hudson Valley named Antonio Delgado. He's the first Afro-Latino congressman in upstate New York. Uh, until pretty recently, he represented a district with Donald Trump won. Uh, and Congressman Delgado is probably one of the most progressive voices in our Congress, uh, one of the loudest voices for infrastructure and healthcare. Uh, and oftentimes, whenever, even within the Democratic primary, we're hearing people saying, in New York City, here, white donors saying, like, you know, why would that person run there? They're racist up there and stuff. And 
we really need to have these conversations about diversity within the party, but not just within like the notion of, of you know, diversity, uh, you know, support critical race theory and stuff, but like, you know, there are people who support these notions of, of diversity, uh, but when it comes to running for office, the one the number one question we face is like, well, this is a 97% white county. Why would a person of color be able to win here? And that's the myth that we need to dispel. Uh, and that's what we do. I'd like you to know, add to that real quick. Um, that is exactly true. Like, you know, I ran, when I ran for Congress, it was myself, two uh, African-American gentlemen and um, one white candidate in the primary. And my this district is about, I think, 60, 70% white. And the white candidate, I think, thought he was going to win because he was the only person. I won that um, primary with 56% of the vote. And it's because I worked hard. I built a lot of relationships. I had been the district chair. And so this person thought they could swoop in out of nowhere. And I even had other people question, you know, can you really win this seat? Can you win the primary? And I think the thing that Paulo said, I think that we also have to say to candidates is you just got to be yourself. You get, you have to be authentic. People yeah. can tell inauthenticity a mile away. And so if we ask minority African-American LGBTQ plus candidates to act differently or to be something they're not, they're definitely not going to be successful. So I yeah. think you also have to just lean into who you are. And last thing, just last week or two weeks ago, a young a woman in Mint Hill, North Carolina, a town that's 75% white, became the first black woman elected to the town council, and she got the fourth slot. And all of the other candidates were, were not African-American. And so it can still be done. And this the numbers don't mean that someone can't be elected. Exactly. Well, let, you know, when we uh, when we come back, I'm going to take a quick break here. But when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more, dive a little deeper in terms of, you know, both what you both are mentioning in terms of being yourself and ethnicity and race, being, even being in uh, a rural America and a town is you know, 99% white doesn't mean they can't elect people of color, you know, because they have shared values, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and, and the way that they talk about that. So we're going to take a quick break. And I want to talk about that shared values piece in terms of them being authentic when we come back. All the wahala, all the problems, all the that you must do to start in this world like when the teacher schoolboy and schoolgirl come together who is the teacher i go let you know who is the teacher i go let you know when welcome we back to sunday friends. civics i am having a great conversation Yay. <laughs> With Paolo Gramides and Cynthia Wallace talking about rural America, Cynthia from the New Rural Project, Paolo from Outrun. We, just before the break, we were talking about just because a, a, a town, a county or an area is majority white does not mean that those communities cannot elect people of color based upon shared values. I think about that on the congressional level, Lauren Underwood's district, which is primarily, you know, it, it's not a majority black district. There's not a lot of black people, it's, you know, but, but they were able to elect her because they had shared values of a candidate who was herself, who, you know, w worked hard and engaged in that community. 
to deliver for her district. And so, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, that there's not a large uh, population there, their shared values. Cynthia, that shared values piece, and particularly as whether it's as a candidate or, or just an organizer or doing work in communities, how important is that shared values piece in across the board for candidates and engagement in general? So I think it all goes down, goes back to values. Um, Lucy McBath, also um, in Georgia, um, her district um, is um, not a majority um, African-American district, in, but she had shared values. She'd been through breast cancer. She had a son that she lost. And so I think that's where we typically make mistakes in um, the, this political space is that we talk about policy issues and you know, facts and figures. So I am a, a mathematician by background. So I do start, I talk a lot about, um, you know, numbers, but where we connect with each other is truly at our core and at our values. And I just real quick example, there was a gentleman, I was at a, an event um, early 2020, one of the last ones in person before COVID. And there's a, a, a white gentleman, six feet tall. I'm like five, three. <laughs> and we started talking and we both realized we were both in finance we both grew up rural. We both worked in factories when we were in college. And we had so many things in common that made us who we are. And so we've got to be, go beyond the surface. And if we do that, candidates can win and they can connect with the people that they're looking to represent. Paolo? Yeah, to add on to what Cynthia was saying, uh, it's the values, but it's also being able to communicate those values in a way that actually wins a campaign. Now, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is you got a lot of 30, 40 year old incumbents in these rural areas that don't know how to use a computer. And they're these old guys who've never run for office before. And my favorite thing to do is to come in and talk to a county Democratic Party, find folks of color, find young folks, you know, find Hispanic, Latinx folks like myself to run for office. And we equip them with van and we equip them with websites and the ability to actually know what their win number is. Something that some of these parties never do before. Uh, and they win. And in places like last Tuesday, we uh, actually elected uh, Angela Abrams to Reynoldsburg School Board in Licking County, uh, Ohio. And that's a county that won 70% for Trump. Uh, we've taken offices in places like Walton, New York, where my friend, the first openly LGBTQ plus elected official in, in, in uh, Delaware County, Eric Ball, uh, ousted a 15-year incumbent uh, in a village that's 82% Republican. Uh, and so communicating those values is not just talking about these things in a stump speech, it's also showing people that we've overcome adversity. Because let's talk about, uh, you know, I think Cynthia will agree with this. Most of our rural communities, they're poor. We're mostly poor working class people. Mm -hmm. And if you're an immigrant or a person of color, an LGBTQ plus person, you've already shown that you had to fight to get accepted in these communities, regardless of whatever. When I was like 13 years old in like this little small town, like, you know, the son of a, my dad's an executive or whatever, like every other kid that I knew was like, you know, their parents were steel workers. I used to go to hardcore shows. Like most people think I'm Latino so that I would like love salsa and stuff and I do, but I used to go to hardcore shows. I learned anti-racist action through music with my friends at union halls. That is not something that like people would think is a traditional path for a candidate of color, but it is because communities of color, LGBTQ plus folks, women, non-binary folks, we're not monolithic. And the biggest thing that we need to fight is a two a twofold thing, uh, making sure that we have conversations about race and diversity in rural county democratic parties because they're not happening most of the time. And number two, showing up in spaces like New York City and making sure that we question all of these like narratives about rural communities uh, at like democratic clubs. Uh, I used to go to like Manhattan Young Democrats and stuff and I would like tell people, you know, well, people would be like, oh, I don't know how they can elect, uh, you know, brown people or whatever. And it's like, well, I'm a spick. 
What are you going to tell me? Right, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So, you know, no problem. Cynthia, to, to that point, I, you know, while Paolo is talking about specifically working in particular parties, right? From a nonpartisan standpoint, you know, whether your party identification in terms of where you want to you know, where your values most align, there still is the underlying issue of um, not treating rural communities across this country. I, I get the tendency sometimes, whether it's stories from like major, major news outlets or when national politicians are sort of pandering to communities or other, it's always a talking down, right? It's just uh -huh. like, you know, make it simple and plain because they can't possibly understand or, you know, they're just basic and simple. And, you know, that kind of, that kind of stuff. What, you know, I've always thought like what, one, what's the origin of that? And then two, like, how does that really come across, you know, in those, in these communities? So I think you're, you're spot on. Um, and, and one of the things that Paulo mentioned um, that I, I did want to um, kind of highlight is the opportunity in particular with young people in these communities. Uh, one of the things that we focus on in my organization are folks under 40, because when we look at their turnout rates in the 2020 election in some of the rural counties that are very poor that I um, am working with, African-American men under 40 had a 35% voter turnout, meaning the number of people that came out to vote in that general election divided by those who were registered to vote. And we know the issue is that no one's speaking to them. And we've done some We've had these county conversations. We've actually also already done focus groups and speaking to people who are infrequent voters. And what we've heard time and time again, in particular from young voters, is that they feel like they're spoken to and not spoken with. And so we've got to bring them in conversation and listen to them. So part of what we're focusing on is actually listening. We have a three-pronged strategy that begins and ends with listening. And we did a focus group. I love this story um, about eight um, black men, mostly under 40, about the end of August. And it was an hour and a half. It went long because they kept talking and it really felt like they created a fraternity among themselves. You know, these are all strangers. And what we felt was how often do people sit there and give them an hour and a half just listening to their thoughts. And at the end of it, there were a couple of them that said, I realized we asked some questions about municipal elections. And um, one um, particular gentleman said, I actually realized all the things I don't know. And so leaving this meeting, I've got to learn more about what's happening in my community. And so I think the critical thing we've got to do is create space for folks who don't feel heard and don't feel like their voice matters to allow them to speak and be heard. And that's a lot of what we're working on. And I think that's going to make a big difference is letting them know their voices matter. And I think political parties, you know, the Democratic Party does, does lend to urban areas. Republican, I think probably lending itself to this Republican means white. I'll be honest, they've given a voice to white voters in rural communities. No one has given a voice to minorities in those communities are not a loud voice. And that's what we want to do is amplify their voices because they were not spoken to in 20, from 2016 to 2020. That's not who people were talking to in the Republican space when they were talking to rural people.
Yeah. You know, that's one of, you know, one of my pieces, voter engagement equals voter turnout, right? Yes. So if you want to increase voter turnout, you got to actually engage voters. You have to talk uh -huh. to them. You have to identify what matters to them. And I, you know, I kind of sit back and think about the, the narrative sometime, you know, uh, and people talk about, you know, bread and butter issues, pocketbook issues, you know, things that people are concerned about, the economic angst that people may be experiencing. And you're right, Cynthia, that it is always framed, you know, particularly for, you know, white communities that, you know, and, and they kind of stoke the fear and stoke the division that exists. And, and they use innuendo to point to, well, it's probably those people of color, right? And then, and that's how they engage people because, you know, fear is all fear and uncertainty is also a way to sort of gen up people's, you know, activity, right? Rather than saying, you know, let's come together and think about how we can all engage and work together, Paolo. Like, it, it, you know, there are different parties and different entities that sort of use that fear, that innuendo, rather than as Cynthia and New Royal Project are talking about is, let's lay it on a table. What are people experiencing? What is the source of what we're experiencing and how can we come together as communities, right? And elect people to represent us in that way instead of, you know, what we have now is certain Republicans are stoking the fear and the racism piece, <laughs> you know, and then Democrats are like, well, all of them are racist, so we're just not going to engage them at all. And then nobody gets a voice. Or, you know, if, if I could just jump in here for a second. I mean, the other thing that happens is this is something that we saw really badly in 2020 was Democratic candidates trying to pander uh, to Republican voters in a way that was flawed. I had a candidate for Congress in upstate New York uh, who was like this, uh, you know, kind of, I'm not going to lie, an out-of-touch professor uh, who, you know, nothing wrong against professors in academia, but at one point this candidate said something along the lines of Black Lives Matter needs to be unnecessary. And that to me was the most problematic thing a Democratic candidate could say. And guess what? In that election, yeah, they raised a million dollars, you know, they had the DCCC endorsement and stuff. They still got destroyed, 60-40. And it was because of the idea that there is this notion within liberalism and progressivism of like rural communities have to be defined by this way and this is their class and this is how we have to talk to them and they always have to be racist and all these people have to be uh, kind of caught up in this notion of, of what is left and right. And oftentimes when we talk with candidates that are thinking of running like that, they lose because they engage in this idea of, of, of kind of like a puppeteering of themselves, of being this like democratic candidate that can only appeal to certain kind of voters or something. And my point to that is not everywhere is West Virginia and no, not everyone has to be Joe Manchin. Uh, and candidates lose, particularly white candidates on racial justice issues in rural communities end up losing because they wanna take this perspective and go all the way to this like far right notion of who can run and when they can run Kind of like what Cynthia said with the white gentleman in her primary. Uh, you know, I've had county legislators uh, and Democratic candidates say Black Lives Matter need to be unnecessary. I've had people try to invoke racial tropes about me because I advise them on issues of racial justice and they just don't want to listen. But guess what? Those folks end up losing. And at the meanwhile, we have fry cooks and barbers and folks of color, working class people who could be the candidate that run for office. But the Democratic Party gets caught up in saying, like, you know, that person doesn't have the experience to run it. And oftentimes when we talk about the, the word experience, it's usually used to, to kind of like describe racial bias or gender bias or, you know, uh, homophobia or stuff. And these are things that live within the party. And, and, and honestly, combating that and finding candidates to run for office that can overcome that and supersede that, that's what wins.
That's what wins in rural communities more. Cynthia, I want to talk about, no problem. I want to talk about some of the issues quickly because, you know, in any political election, particularly candidates, like if you're talking about presidential races or congressional races, they're large, they're, you know, huge races and things get boiled down to one to three issues that are important in the cycle. But we know that across the country, they're like, people live in neighborhoods, (laughs) they live in communities, they're not always thinking thinking about national politics or things from a national scale. They're thinking about my town, my job, (laughs) my healthcare, Mm -hmm. like, you know, my individual piece there. What are some of the things that, you know, I would think that although you may come from a rural community and yeah, I live in an urban area, there's still some things, whether it be economy, healthcare, things that are shared, right? I should think about in a different way, right? So what are someone like me, a strategist from a big city, should keep in mind that rural Americans are thinking about that we need to include in national conversations? So I would say, you know, we have had an opportunity to, um, like I said, do some have some conversation specifically with folks that are probably no one's talking to because they don't show up to vote every time. And so people don't talk to them. Um, Their first issue um, within the last two months of our discussions has been economic things, low jobs, low wages um, of the counties that I'm supporting. Five of them are in the bottom 15 economically out of 100 counties in North Carolina. So they've got a lot of economic stress. But one of the things that, and I grew up in a small town and most of my family, I live in Charlotte now, but most of my family still lives rural. It takes a long time to get to entertainment. And so that's one of the things they brought up. They said, I can't get a good meal in my town. I have to drive an hour to Fayetteville or to Charlotte, to these larger cities. And so those things that people want, one of the gentlemen said, I'd love to get a have a nice jazz place to go to. So it's those things that make home and make where you live more enjoyable. Um, but the other thing that I feel like we haven't talked enough about that was not surprising to me, but it was something that came up for them was drugs and crime. And they talked a lot about over the pandemic, the number of drug overdoses they had seen because of the depression, because of the economic stress, Um, I was talking to someone in rural Scotland County yesterday, and he was talking about a couple of teenagers found in a car overdose. And so that is a critical issue that they worry about every day. And I don't think it's a loud enough part of the conversation. And so those are the things that they're worried about every single day. And I don't know how much, you know, we're working on those issues. And I'm concerned right now that some of the issues we're working on are kind of yesterday's issues and they're not what people are care, care about. People are worried about the price of gas. People are worried about how much it costs when they go to the grocery store. Um, and so those are the things that people are concerned about. And are those the things that our elected officials are they actively working on? And then the last thing I'll add is what you were talking about engaging. Our organization is really focused on um, not necessarily registering thousands of voters, engaging like that 65% of black men that didn't vote. How do we get them to turn out? And we believe your your title of your show is really what intrigued me too, is we want to launch Civics 101 because people are saying, we just go up to the door and we say, go vote, elections in two weeks. And they're like, why? And so what we aim to do is to connect their day-to-day life 
with how that's impacted by if they vote or if they don't and who they elect and who they put on like their basic planning and zoning board. How does the board of elections impact you having early voting locations? And so we really want to engage folks in understanding beyond that November date that you go out and vote. What else does it mean? And why is your life how it is because of the people that have been elected to represent you? That's a really important part. You know, part of that engagement, as you mentioned, Cynthia, is that two-way communication, right? Not just being dictated to, but that people feel, one, that they trust, that you actually care about <laughs> and want to do something to address the issues that matter to them and their communities. But, Paolo, the other piece is, as Cynthia mentioned, people, you know, one of the pet peeves I have about civics education is it often gets eventually boiled down to volunteerism, yeah. right? And it's like, you know, civics, oh, clean up your community and pick up trash in the park and, you know, things like that. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I don't want to sound like an asshole and forgive me on a Sunday morning, but like, it's just like, not that that stuff isn't important, right? Like to, you know, clean up and clean up drives and go donate blood. All of that is important. That is not civic engagement, you know? And it's like, if you boil things down to volunteerism versus empowering people that you have a voice, a say, and a vote in how your country, your community, and your neighborhood is governed, and where your money needs to go to things like that is empowering people to have greater control and investment in something you saying come and volunteer to pick up chip bags you know at the at you know at the football fields right like that keeps people in a certain ignorant you know view that rather than them knowing oh, I know who we need to put on the town board who will ensure that we have zoning that allows for more of these jazz clubs or restaurants or things to really, you know, grow our community, right? Like it, it keeps people in a certain box in that way. And the one thing that I, like we've taken like, and I'm sure you know, uh, and I'm sure you know Anderson and all the like young Dems people uh, who are like involved in like North Carolina and like young Democrats of America and like rural it's talking about rural young people in the Democratic Party, right? And one big demand that I always see is that there's always, in, a, in an election cycle, these kids, they're not given the internships. They're not given the jobs. And then when somebody has to come in to actually do the organizing work, the Democratic Party parachutes people in. And so when we talk yeah. about making sure that we actually have these conversations, everyone that watches this who might be from a rural community First things first is we need to make sure that the Democratic Party recognizes that diversity is not something that's just something you check off, but it is something that you have to show off, not just in Brooklyn, not just in Manhattan or whatever, but also in rural communities. Because I will tell you what, and I hate to say it this way, but some like white kid with a trust fund from the Upper East Side will not relate to working class voters from rural communities, from Corning, New York, or, or Horsets, New York, the way that I can. There are people like myself and other young people who have had to leave rural communities because there were no jobs for them. There was no level of uh, commitment to civil engagement uh, the way that there is in other parts of the country. Uh, and we need to change that. And part of that, Eljoy, is, is I don't believe in the idea that young people and young democratic organizers and, and progressive activists have to work for free. And this idea yeah. that rural democratic organizers have to donate 100% of their time. Well, the Lincoln Project, and I hate to talk crap, 
but I, you know, I will. Well, the Lincoln Project rakes up $72 million and we can't scrounge up $10,000 to run for state assembly. Well, we're asking people to, you know, volunteer their hours to make sure that we go knock on doors in Poughkeepsie or something like that. And at the same time, we have consultants that are telling the Democratic Party to write places off because they don't have a real mindset outside of like leaving Manhattan to go to Aspen or to go to Europe or something. Uh, and Paolo, you said something important, which is that pay part. Yeah. One of the things mm -hmm. our organization is doing, we are we are incentivizing advocacy, which is a, yeah. a, a word my one of my board members, but it costs to volunteer. There's yeah. a cost to it. And so we don't expect that you can knock those doors without pay. And so, and also if you send someone from Charlotte, a liberal, I love them, I live in South Charlotte, liberal white woman who is a stay-at-home mom, and I have her knocking on doors in Waysboro yeah. in the projects, they're yeah. not gonna be, they're like, what are you, who are you? We yeah. want people from the community that reflects them and there's a level of trust that will incentivize them to get engaged. And the last thing I'll say, I know we're at time. Yeah. But one of the, we we paid. Um, we've had some staff to do some canvassing for us for some um, vaccination work. And literally a week later, that person had come back and had gotten a job working in vaccination work. And she'd gone back into her community with her new role project shirt. And people started asking her questions. What mm. is that? What are they doing? Oh, they're vaccinating. And so when we hire folks from the community when they go back to their community now they're bringing advocacy the things that they're learning about those candidates and about the process they're going to bring that back to their community and to their families and so we have to go beyond the liberal stay-at-home corporate i got a good mm -hmm. job i can volunteer we've got to go beyond them and we have to support financially people that need these resources to be able to do this advocacy work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> I, 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 I want, I want you guys to come back. Right. And maybe we can grow this conversation because I'm, I'm also interested. One of the things I, I, I talk about in the infrastructure bill, right. Is, you know, we need to invest in communities, particularly rural communities across the country who need that investment. They need the jobs, they need the infrastructure, and they need places where they can grow, continue to grow their communities because we have neighborhoods or, you know, rural communities that they're young people, they go off to college, they leave to go, you know, to other places because there is not a future for their family and for their community. And, you know, and we, we've become okay with that. We, you know, right. normally it right that oh no you gotta leave the the hick town you grew up in or were raised in and go to the big city what why can't it why can't the dream be to build and you know continue to have your rural community flourish like why why does it have to be this one way and i think things like the infrastructure bill to help build roads and bridges and build new jobs and you know broadband uh, and broadband and all of that will allow communities to grow and flourish and not dwindle out because we have the example of what happens you know uh, some of the the factory towns right that shut down and now the whole towns you know are depressed we Don't can care. learn from that experience 
by <laughs> putting more investment in communities and having people uh, spread out. Oh, I got to have you guys back. We got to talk more. <laughs> I'd love to come it. back. I can't wait. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> to talk more about it. So Cynthia, thank you so very much. Please find the Rural Project and their great work that they're doing. Paolo, I'm coming up to, I'm coming up there soon. Uh, and we got to talk more about Brooklyn, just to let you know. All right. Well, we gotta we gotta catch up. Now, I want to c- come to some of these towns and have conversations, as you mentioned, Cynthia, talking with people about what uh, care, what matters to them and yeah. what they want to see from their leadership. Thanks to both of you for taking your time, and we'll be right back with more of Sunday Civics. Thank you. Thank you. How can it be? Welcome back to Sunday Civics with your girl, L. Joy Williams. We just finished a conversation talking about engaging voters in rural communities with Cynthia Wallace and Paolo Cremides, both who have founded or co-founded organizations and coalitions to engage voters. (laughs) And it just so happens to be that the voters that they are engaging, the candidates they are recruiting, the people they are training are in rural communities. I hope the conversation today changed your perspective. And some of you are like, look, I've either come from those communities or my family still lives in a rural community and you already had this view, good for you. (laughs) But for a number of us, we have to be consistently reminded that the America that we live in, the town, the city, the area that we live in is not a representation of how everybody lives across the country. There are some common themes, some common values that people have, no matter if they live in rural communities or in a bustling town or an overpopulated metropolitan area. If you are serious about engaging voters, about turning out voters, about having your community be civically engaged and active, and, and also being able to get the resources they need, the representation they deserve, coming to the table now and having conversations with people about what matters to them, and then making the connection about how their civic participation connects to them and their communities being able to get those resources, being able to get those services, that is civic engagement. Now, I'm saying this without, you know, without party ID, right? Yes, I'm a Democrat and that's how I practice my politics right now. But if you are just, you just want to get your, the the better, if you just want to get better resources for your community, if you want greater investment in your infrastructure, having a civically engaged community is one of the keys to making that happen. 
And it's not just because you have one or two rich people that, you know, can coordinate and make these things happen. Having an engaged citizenry, having an engaged community can also make that happen. And the reason why wealthy people are able to get what they need is not, yes, they have money to put before politicians, elected officials, and the powers that be, but they're also very demanding. You know, either they themselves or they hire someone to be vocal, to be present, to be engaged, because yes, people respond to people who've given checks, but they also respond to people who are persistent, who are engaged, who knows who's in charge, who knows what they want. And for some of the rural communities across the country who have been devastated economically, who want to come together and build their communities, or they're not economically devastated, but they're just losing population, you know, people grow up and move out and never come back, you know, coming together as a community and developing a strategy and holding the elected officials accountable to make sure that the resources are flowing in a way so that they can make that happen is important. And this is the time to do it, right? Because we have infrastructure money coming. We have, knocking on wood, we have all of this funding that's going to come from the federal government down to the state and then into local communities. I keep telling y'all to follow the money, right? Because the federal the federal government is going to issue all of this money, but it's then going to come down to states and then local communities and counties and cities and towns, right? Now is the time to be actively engaged. So those things that you wish you had in your community that you're talking about them in a public way with your community and then talking to those who represent you, your mayor, your county executives, your Senate leaders, your congressional members. And when they come around asking for your vote during this midterm election cycle, you can ask them where they stand on, you know, whatever plan that you put together and how much money they're willing to put up to make it happen. Right, Being engaged in that way, being able to determine what your community will look like in the near future, in the far future, is part of being civically engaged. It's not just picking up trash on the weekends at a park, which is all great, but civic engagement is about participating in your own governance and being able to determine and decide where the resources, your tax dollars, are going to uplift your community and your country. That is what we're trying to build here on Sunday Civics. We are trying to build those of you who are listening, that you are active, you are engaged, and you are helping decide how you are governed, who is representing you, and where your resources are going. I want to thank you so very much for coming to class this morning. Hope you went and saw the campaign heating up (laughs) for the candidate Big Bird, who's challenging Ted Cruz. Seriously, it's so fun. We're going to have to. Maybe I I have the candidate on the show. Who knows? (laughs) But thank you so much for listening. I look forward to having you back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics.